If you have your Bibles, uh, turn to Romans 11. Uh, I'd just encourage you, maybe you have the Bible on your phone, as most people do today. Uh, pull up Romans 11 and look, because there's a few things I want to show you uh, as we think about this, um, this text today. I remember uh, an older pastor once uh, was in a, a meeting, and he was leading a devotional, and everybody pulled their phone out to look at the Bible, you know, on their phone, and he got angry, <laughs> he got upset, and his wife had to tell him, hey, their Bibles are on their phones. It's like, okay, so if you're looking at your phone, I'll know that you're looking at the text, all right? Let's look at Romans 11, verses 1 through 10. This is a great chapter. We're going to be here for the next uh, three weeks uh, in this chapter, so we'll think about it this morning. How many of you remember Air Aaron? Anybody remember Air Aaron? Used to the little, uh, they were barely planes, but they flew them from Galway to Dublin and Cork, and they may have gone over to the UK uh, in, in some way, shape, or form. I can't remember. But I remember several years back, I was uh, somewhere, uh, I was at a conference or something in, in Europe, and I, it was one of those things where I had to be at the airport early trying to get back to, uh, to Galway, and the plane kept being delayed. And so I was in the airport all day, pretty much, and finally got on a plane at about 8.30 in the evening and uh, made my way back to Dublin. By the time I got to Dublin, it was 11.30, maybe almost midnight. And because of the way the bus schedule worked, there was like a two or two and a half hour gap before the next bus service back to Galway. And I thought, man, I really, I really don't want to be in another airport for longer, you know. So I went to the, I thought, you know what, I'm just going to take a chance. I went to the little ticket counter for Air Aaron, and they had a, a plane that was about to leave from Dublin and fly to Galway. And I thought, man, that's great. And I said, how much? She told me, and it was reasonable, given how tired I was. And so I said, okay, I'll take it. Let's do it. So I got on this plane. There's barely 20 seats on this plane. And uh, there, it must have been a yellow uh, storm warning at the time because it was windy, it was rainy, and we, we barely got off the ground, it felt like. And this plane is, you know, you're, it's falling and it's doing this, and you're sitting there going, man, are we going to make it? And you know, in an airplane, when the, you know, you've been in the air for a little bit and the captain comes on the, over the speaker and he gives you, hey, here's what we're doing, here's what time we expect to get there. Well, the, the captain came on the speaker and he said, you know, he gave a few things, and he talked about the weather, and then he said, here's what he said. He said, I'm not going to lie to you. It's not going to be pretty, but we'll get you there. It's not going to be pretty, but we'll get you there, right? Now, we have moments in life like that, don't we, where we think, man, I don't know if I'm going to get there. I don't know if I'm going to make it, right? Uh, we might look at our lives at, at times and wonder, you know, maybe because of difficulty, I'm struggling with this. You know, there's this thing, this health scare, or my rela this relationship is deteriorating, and you know what? I don't think I'm going to make it. I don't think I'm going to make it. Maybe, uh, sometimes, maybe it's, uh, it's, it's a struggle with sin, and we think, man, I just don't know if I'm going to make it. I don't know if God is going to be able to get me through this thing. Sometimes sin and, and, and failure uh, causes us to wonder, maybe God has just given up on me. Now, maybe he's just abandoned me and, and left me to my own devices. Will we make it? 
is a question that we often struggle uh, with. Uh, Do God's promises really stand the test of time? Do they really, are they really able to get us through? Well, again, from chapters 9 through 11, we're thinking about this question of Israel. And it's an important one for us. If God has abandoned Israel and the promises that he made to Israel... If he's abandoned them, if he's given up on them, if, he has, if those promises are nullified, either because of his inability or because of their sinfulness, then maybe he will be unfaithful to us as well. Maybe his promises to us will not be able to be sustained. And so can we have confidence if that's the case? And again, if you remember back, chapter 9 God hasn't proven unfaithful to his promises to Israel. Paul, is, Paul argues because uh, God, his promises to Israel never meant that every individual Israelite was going to experience salvation. God was at work in a different way. And after a brief interlude, we heard from Will, we heard from Chris in, in uh, chapters 10, or in chapter 10, end of 9, chapter 10, this little brief interlude where Paul starts to think about the Gentiles and, and the Gentiles and how they've come into the picture. Paul's going to turn back now in chapter 11 to think about what the promises that God made to Israel in the Old Testament did mean for them, what they do mean for them in the future. And so here in chapter 11, Paul is going to kind of close this loop that we started in chapter 9 by uh, exploring more deeply God's continuing commitment to his promise to Israel, to ethnic Israel. Just real quick, I mean, look at verse 2 in chapter 11. God has not rejected his people whom he foreknew. Then if you skip ahead to verse 28, These are the bookends that kind of frame where Paul is going to take us over the next couple of weeks. As regards the gospel, they are enemies of God for your sake, but as regards election, they are beloved for the sake of their forefathers. Will God be faithful to get his people all the way from this world to the next? Well, we're going to think about how Paul answers that for his audience here in, this, in these verses in the first century, and then how God wants us to think about it today. And what we'll see is, yes, God is faithful to his people whom he has chosen to be his people. God is faithful to his people whom he has chosen to be his people. Let's think about these verses together. Uh, God's loving favor, Paul's going to argue, is, has rested on some within Israel in keeping with his promises that he made to Israel all those years ago. Verses 1 to 6. He hasn't totally rejected his people. And as we'll see uh, later, I don't want to get ahead of ourselves, but as we'll see later, he hasn't finally rejected his people. So look at verse 1. 
Again, we're coming off of uh, chapter 10, verse 21, where he says of Israel, he quotes Isaiah, all day long I have held out my hands to a disobedient and contrary people. And so verse, chapter 11, verse 1, I ask then, has God rejected his people? That's the question that Paul's going to think about in these verses. And his answer is, by no means. That's the strongest way to state a negative in the Greek language. By no means. No way, Jose, as we said back in Texas all those years ago. Uh, no, God has not rejected his people. Uh, if you look down at verse 2, God has not rejected his people whom he foreknew. Now, we need to distinguish here between two kinds of election, between two elections when it comes to Israel. Here's the first. God chose to rest his favor on the nation of Israel in the Old Testament in keeping. Uh, sorry, he, he chose to rest his favor on the nation of Israel to give them a role and a purpose in the unfolding plan of salvation. So think back to the godfather of Israel, Abraham. Abraham is chosen amongst all the people of the nations. Abraham alone is chosen to be the instrument and from whom this nation would arise, which would be instrumental in God rescuing the world, right? Uh, Deuteronomy uh, chapter 14, verse 2, the Lord has chosen you, talking about Israel, to be a people for his treasured possession out of all the peoples who are on the face of the earth. In Exodus 9, Moses says something sim similar. In, in Amos, the prophet Amos, in chapter 3, verse 2, you only have I known of all the families of the earth. They, Israel, were offered these temporal blessings that no other nation was offered. And they were offered, like no other nation, an opportunity for a genuine spiritual blessing from God through faith. And so this is the sense in verse 2 when Paul says, God has not rejected his people whom he foreknew. He's thinking about the nation of Israel has not been totally rejected as God has chosen them for this purpose. God hasn't totally rejected Israel. Now, listen, it's very important that we make a distinction here between ethnic Israel, as Paul is thinking about, and what we see today as political Israel. It's an important distinction because today, political Israel is apostate. They are lost apart from Christ. So Paul is not thinking about a 21st century political Israel. He's thinking about an ethnic Israel and a national Israel that carries from the Old Testament. Chosen, elect of God to play a role in what God was going to do throughout history. So God chose to love the nation of Israel in a corporate sense. But as we saw in chapter 9, then from within that corporate entity, he chose a remnant within Israel to love in a redemptive way for salvation. That was chapter 9. 
And so Paul is going to offer three proofs in these following verses that, that God has not totally rejected his chosen people, ethnic Israel. The first thing that he's going to offer is a personal proof. Look at verse uh, 2. Uh, sorry, look at verse 1. By no means God has not rejected his people, for I myself am an Israelite, a descendant of Abraham, a member of the tribe of Benjamin. Paul himself is living proof that God has not totally rejected the nation Israel because Paul is an Israelite and he has experienced the salvation that was on offer to the nation. In verse 2, Paul says, God has not rejected his people whom he foreknew. He offers a doctrinal proof. Uh, this word foreknow, it means foreloved. It carries with it the understanding of chosen to love, set your love upon. So, so Paul says uh, that God has chosen in a, in, a, in a salvific way some within Israel. John Stott made the comment that foreknowledge here and rejection are mutually incompatible. Look at the verse again. God has not rejected his people whom he foreknew. To foreknow is set in opposition to rejected. So to foreknow involves a choosing where God has taken some within Israel and he has chosen them for a different purpose, for redemption. And finally, Paul gives a biblical example from the story of Elijah, of God singling out and choosing a remnant from among the nation who would experience his blessing. Here's what he says. Do you not know what the, scriptures say, what the scripture says of Elijah? How he appeals to God against Israel. Lord, they've killed your prophets, they've demolished your altars, and I alone am left, and they seek my life. Who's the they from 2 Kings chapter 19? It is Israel. It is the nation of Israel that has turned against Elijah and these prophets. And here's what God says, verse 4. But what is God's reply to him? I have kept for myself 7,000 men who have not bowed the knee to Baal. It's a remnant. It's a group within Israel that is faithful because God has chosen to, uh, to, to keep them aside for his purposes. And so the conclusion that Paul reaches in verse five to this question, has God rejected his people? No, he says, so too. Just like these three examples I've given you, so too, at the present time, there is a remnant chosen by grace. Paul's conclusion is that there exists today, and in, and in Paul's day, uh, this was a pretty sizable group, many thousands of, of Jews that had trusted in Jesus. A remnant exists who have experienced the blessing of salvation as God's chosen ones through God's sovereign choice. So no, God has not rejected his people. Even today, in Paul's day, 
There is a remnant. There are, there are Jewish people who are turning to Jesus and experiencing the salvation that was on offer. This remnant exists, you'll note, solely through the grace of God and his sovereign choice. Now that's important because the Jews can't claim any birthright to this salvation that God offers through faith. And listen, neither can we, right? Uh, Salvation doesn't come to us because our parents or our grandparents or our great-grandparents were believers. It comes through faith in Jesus Christ by the grace of God. And this is what makes it grace for Paul. The grace for Paul demands God's freedom to choose, and it logically excludes any form of works. Look at what he says in verse 5. So too in the present time there's a remnant chosen by grace, but if it is by grace, it is no longer on the basis of works. Otherwise, grace would no longer be grace. Grace logically excludes any form of working to try to earn what is on offer. Incidentally, you'll notice that word no longer uh, in verse 6. If it's by grace, it's no longer on the basis of works. That's not, he's not using that in a temporal sense. Like, okay, it used to be this, but now it's this. And I just refer you over to Galatians chapter 3, verse 18, where Paul uses the same word, but he switches, he switches the two things that he looks at in verse 6 here. Here's what he says in Galatians 3. For if the inheritance comes by the law, it is no longer, sorry, it no longer comes by the promise. So that, that word there, no longer, it's not temporal. Paul's not suggesting that in the Old Testament people were saved by works. They were saved by faith, just like today. What he wants to do is to say, look, logically, works and grace are incompatible. They're mutually exclusive because he wants to prove the point that this remnant that is saved within Israel is saved not because of what they did, but because of God's sovereign choice and his grace. Think back to Romans 4, Verses four and five, where Paul said to the one who works, his wages are not counted as a gift. And Paul draws the distinction between wages that are earned and a gift of grace that is freely given. And he wants to put those at the, at the, the furthest extremes that he can to show that they are mutually exclusive. Grace and works cannot exist together. If any part of this remnant salvation is down to any works that they have done, then it cannot be called grace. It cannot be called grace because in some way it's earned. So Paul wants to be clear on that. But this remnant idea has another side, doesn't it? So Most of ethnic Israel was not chosen, Paul's going to argue, but hardened. Look at verses 7 to 10. Now, when we look at verse 7, I want you to notice there's three groups that get mentioned in verse 7. What then? Israel, 
failed to obtain what it was seeking. The elect obtained it, but the rest were hardened. Notice the three groups. First group is Israel, the nation. He says, though Israel sought to be right with God. If you look back to chapter 9, verse 31, he says that Israel pursued a law that would lead to righteousness. It did not succeed. What Israel was pursuing was right standing, but they missed it because they were trying to get there through works. And so though Israel sought to be right with God, only a small number of elect received it, received it through grace, while the rest, the rest of the nation were hardened. This is kind of a summary of the, the, the paradox of Israel's situation. If you remember back to chapter 9, uh, Paul has described Israel's condition as down to God's sovereign choosing of some and his rejection of others. Remember, Jacob I loved and Esau I rejected, I hated. At the same time, we saw when Will uh, spoke, we saw in chapter 9, verse 33, chapter 10, uh, verse 3, that they missed it because they stumbled over Jesus. They refused to believe in who Jesus was. And so what we see today in Paul's day is a small number of elect among the nation and then a bunch of Gentiles we saw in chapter 10 have received Jesus and the rest of the nation has experienced hardening. They missed it. And God has sealed them in the obstinacy of their sin. Now let's think back to chapter 9 when we think about this idea of hardening. The word that Paul uses is the word for a callus. Uh, it's the word of a, uh, for, that it's used for the healing of a bone, how it calcifies and gets, uh, gets hard. And, and this is God here doing the hardening. But remember, we, we don't mean by this that God creates evil and then puts it into people's hearts. That's not what we mean. These guys were already sinners. These are children of Adam, and they are sinful uh, and God is completely just in, in, in judging them and giving them the judgment they deserve. And so the hardening that Paul thinks about is the just and judicious act of God sealing them in their sin, in their state of sin. Think about Romans chapter 1. God giving them over to what they are pursuing in disobedience to God. This is God locking the door in keeping with their sinful will. God closes the door on them. Uh, in John chapter 12, Jesus speaks about this. Uh, the, the, the disciples come, Lord, or he quotes Isaiah, Lord, who has believed what, we, what he has heard from us and to whom has the arm of the Lord been revealed? And he says, therefore, they could not believe. For again, Isaiah said, he's blinded their eyes and hardened their hearts. Now listen, that is in some way not the end of the story for ethnic Israel. We'll see in the later parts of chapter 11. This is the mystery that Paul is going to develop later in the chapter. But for now, what we see 
in Israel is some saved, but many more hardened, sealed in their rejection of Jesus. And so Paul, adding to the authority he already has, he quotes from the Old Testament. And he quotes from the law, the prophets, and the writings, which together carried the full weight of the Old Testament. And so in verse, um, in verse 8, uh, he's going to combine portions of Deuteronomy 29 and Isaiah 29 to show how God closes the eyes. He closes the ears of the people to the message of the gospel, giving them a, a spirit of stupor is the, the language that's used. Uh, I don't know if you've ever had the experience of being in a really deep sleep and then you wake up and you kind of don't know anymore. Wait, am I asleep or am I awake? Where am I? What planet is this? You've ever been in that state? This is the idea. Uh, if your arm's ever fallen asleep and it kind of starts waking up and it's, you know, it's all tingly, this is the idea. The spirit of stupor, eyes that can't see and ears that can't hear. You become numb in this state of hardening. You become numb to the message of the gospel. In Psalm 69 that Paul quotes in verses 9 and 10 is a prayer of David for God to visit judgment upon his enemies. And Paul applies it here to the hardened among the nation. He says, let their eyes be darkened so that they cannot see. Let their table become a snare and a trap. That all, their, that all their advantages, all the advantages that the nation of Israel had, they become liabilities in their blindness. And they remain under the burden of their sin. And we see this in other parts of the New Testament as well. Uh, Matthew chapter 13, uh, when Jesus explains to his disciples why he speaks to them in parables. You see the same idea. Uh, Paul in Ephesians 4, verse 18, he says that they are darkened in their understanding, alienated from the life of God because of the ignorance that is in them due to the hardness of their heart. Due to the hardness of their heart. So see, Paul wants us to see in these verses that God is faithful to his people the ones that he has chosen to be his people. And we've seen earlier as we've journeyed through chapters 9 to 11 that we are, as the chosen among the Gentiles, now included in that number. And so we can affirm then that God is faithful to all his chosen people in all times and in all places, even us who have believed. Israel's present state, where only a few are believing in the promises, does not derail God's promises to his people. He is faithful in all times and in all places to those who have believed. We are a part of this through faith. Just as Paul is writing to a church in Rome that's primarily made up of Gentiles, so we as Gentiles, share in the gift of being called God's people. Listen, not because of us. Not, not because of, of who we were. We were sinners just like the rest. But simply because of God's electing grace. 
And so this choosing that Paul talks about in verses 5 and verse 7, it's our experience as well. We were chosen in order that we might obtain right standing before God. Just look again at verse uh, 7. This one little phrase, this, this one little uh, clause, the elect obtained it. Notice the strength of the connection in those few words. If not for God's ordaining, his foreordaining, his choosing, his electing, no one would be saved. Notice, uh, the elect are the ones who obtained, and what is the it? It is the right standing before God that comes through justification. It is only the elect that obtain it, which means, conversely, no one obtains it apart from God's sovereign choosing. And listen, verse 6, that choosing is all of God's grace. There is nothing in us, as great as you were, there is nothing in you that compelled God to choose you over someone else. It is all of God's grace. It's not because we were lovely that God cast his love upon us before the foundation of the world. This gift of salvation that we experience is not a wage that we earned. It's not a right that we have. It doesn't come to us because of our expert, exceeding religiosity. It doesn't come to us because, because of who our parents were or who our parents are. As Paul might say, corporate election is not enough. There is the grace of God. And so we think, why did God choose me? We have to say, <laughs> I have no idea. I have no idea. But not all are chosen. As we look around the world today, probably not even most, as far as we can tell, are chosen. God has given people over to follow their own way. And so most of the world is justly sealed in their sin and destined for wrath. Remember chapter 9, so that God might be glorified in the display of all of his attributes. And that's where we were until God in his grace plucked us from the fire, as it were. So how do we respond to this as we think about God's faithfulness? What, what do we do with the thought that God might abandon us, that his promises might not be sustained. Well, we drop anchor. We drop anchor in the firm ground of God's proven faithfulness, no matter what. Listen, my prayer for us is that our trust would be deepened as we thought about this today. That all we are and all we have is because of God and his grace. And all his promises are backed up by his perfect record of faithfulness. He's never unfaithful to his promises. 
And I hope that that causes us to, to, to have a deepened sense of trust. Even when it doesn't look like it, he won't give up on us. And we are secure. I pray that we would delight in the peace that comes from knowing that. That the joy that comes from walking in this difficult world with the understanding that God is always faithful to his people, no matter what. That he is willing and he is able. I pray that we would cling to that more tightly. And listen, I pray that we would be a people who share that with those around us. You know, as we thought about a few weeks back, this idea of election doesn't impede our evangelism. It fuels it. Because God has not only chosen who is going to respond to the gospel, he's chosen that the way that they respond is through us sharing the message. And we don't know who those people are, so we tell everyone that we see about the goodness of God who is always faithful to his word. And finally, listen, if you're not a believer in Jesus today, if you've never trusted in Christ today and you have heard this message that Jesus died for you and offers you life by virtue of his death on your behalf, if you have heard that and it has made sense to you, you need to turn to Jesus in faith. Because there may come a day when it no longer makes sense. There may come a day when the eyes of your heart become so blind and the ears of your heart become so deaf to the words of the gospel that it no longer makes sense. And so if you've heard that message today and it makes sense to you, you need to turn and you need to trust. Today is the day of opportunity. You're not guaranteed tomorrow. So trust in him today. I remember uh, years ago, my family and I were flying from Shannon Airport back to the U.S. And uh, Wyatt was just a little guy, and he had these, uh, these Avenger characters. And he'd brought, he'd brought like eight of them for the plane. It's like we have a whole separate bag just for these, uh, just for these Avenger characters for him to play with. And we're sitting there in Shannon Airport like you do. You're waiting, you know, for the plane. And he's, you know, he's sitting there playing away. Uh, and then lo and behold, we get on the plane. We're airborne. And we open up the, the bag. And he's left one of them behind. And it was probably his favorite one. I can't remember. But he's left one of them behind. And there's nothing you can do about it, right? We're in the air. It's, it's gone. Some other kid is playing with it now. It was too much for him to keep up with all these uh, all these toys, and so he lost one. Listen, God's not like that. God doesn't lose his people. He is faithful to the ones that he has chosen to be his people. Even Israel is not totally abandoned, and neither are we, and neither are we. He is working to bring in a people to whom he can show eternal faithfulness. And those of us who have believed and trusted in Christ are among that number. And so we can trust. We can trust 
that he will always be faithful to his people. He's good for it. He's good for it. Let's pray. Father, as we think about your word, as we step back and we consider, regardless of what we might see on the surface or think we see on the surface, when we step back and consider it, we see a perfect record of faithfulness to your promises. And we appreciate how Paul has worked it out to help us understand that even the nation Israel, you have not abandoned. You are still faithful to your promises. Father, I pray that as we go through our lives, as we experience the difficulty in life that so often causes us to wonder if you've abandoned us, I pray, Father, that we might take heart that you are faithful. You are faithful. We thank you, Father, for your goodness. We thank you for Jesus and what he has accomplished in the work of redemption. And I pray, Father, if there are any who have never placed their trust in Jesus, I pray, Father, that you would work in them that they might turn and trust in Christ, even today. And we'll thank you in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen.